1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Johanna Londonio about her recently published book, Abstract Barrios The Crises of Latinx Visibility in Cities, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Johanna Londonio is an associate professor. In the department of latin american caribbean and u.s latina latino studies at the university of albany suny she holds a phd in american studies from nyu and a bachelor's in fine arts from the cooper union for the advancement of science and art londonio is the author of abstract barrios the crises of latinx visibility in u.s cities which received funding from the graham foundation her research On Latinx Peoples and Cultures and Cities, appears in edited volumes such as Race and Retail, edited by Mia Bay and Anne Fabian, and Latino Urbanism, edited by David Diaz and Rodolfo Torres, and in various journals including Social Semiotics, Identities, and American Quarterly. Her research has benefited from a fellowship from the Northeastern Consortium for Faculty Diversity at Northeastern University, a Princeton Mellon Foundation Fellowship in Architecture, Urbanism, and Humanities, and the Ford Foundation Dissertation Fellowship, and Postoral, Postdoctoral Fellowship. Excuse me. Johanna, thank you so much for being on air with us today, and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm really happy to be here, and um, thank you for the invitation.
1: Of course. Uh, I was wondering if, to begin the interview you would uh, tell us a bit about yourself, You know, perhaps tell us a bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, who you worked with, um, what you were inspired by, how you came to be interested in the topic of Latinx architectural and aesthetic visibility in U.S. cities. Um, and I know there is some of this in your preface, but please, for our listeners who may not have had the chance to read your book yet, um, how did this book come about?
2: Sure. So I was born and married in Medellín, Colombia, I arrived to the United States um, with my mom when I am a year old, and we settle in Union City, New Jersey. Um, We settle in Union City, New Jersey because my grandmother had arrived there two years prior to that, and she was working in a factory. And in that factory, she was able to secure a sponsor letter for my mom from the factory owner. And so we come to Union City. Union City, at this point in time, the 1980s, is, along with nearby cities, um, thought to be the embroidery capital of the world. So it's just a major cluster of garment factories. And these garment factories are attracting... Uh, Latin American immigrants from all over, so Colombia, but also Cuba and Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and Ecuador. I mean, you name it, El Salvador, everywhere, right? And this creates uh, North Hudson, Northern New Jersey, uh, really diverse Latinx population in the area. Now um, you know my both my mom and my grandmother work in factories. All of the women in my family who migrated to the United States work in these factories. But my my life is going to take a sharp turn when I'm able to enter college, um, and I will be the first person in my immediate family to complete um, my college education. And as you noted at the start, um, I received my BFA from the Cooper Union um, School of Art. And at Cooper Union, I was taking classes that one usually takes in an art school, right? I was taking photography classes and design classes and sculpture classes and printmaking But I was also taking as many humanities and social science courses as I could possibly fit into my schedule. Um, I thought those courses were fascinating, but I also found them to be really challenging. So as I was nearing the completion of my um, uh, degree, I started to ask myself, well, do you want to go out into the quote unquote real worlds to create <laughs> logos for companies? Or do you want to do some more research on these uh, research interests that you've started to identify as an undergraduate? And I lucked out because uh, my junior year, uh, the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers came to interview at the Cooper Union School of Art. Yay, IRT. Yeah, IRT. And so I was able to do a summer right before my senior year with IRT. And that just really opened up a whole world of possibility for me. I didn't know what a PhD was prior to doing IRT, right? And so they not only described what a PhD entails, but they also helped me with the application process with the GRE, which was so, I mean, it was so helpful, right? Like as a first generation student, I remember studying for my SAT the night before, after I got off like my, you know, job at Old Navy. So so the idea that I could have folks um, mentor me for the GRE was just, you know, really helpful. I end up going to NYU, which worked out perfectly um, because Arlene Davila was there. And Arlene Davila was my advisor. And the year that I came into the American Studies program at NYU, Arlene had just published um, Barrio Dreams. And Barrio Dreams unpacks a lot of the research interests that I have, which are gentrification, um, what we might today call hintification, urban development larger processes of urban change. Arlene is also discussing internal Latinx dynamics, um, in in her case, specifically Mexicans and Puerto Ricans living in East Harlem. And so that just worked out um, perfectly for me uh, to have her as a mentor and someone that I could be in dialogue with. Um, So I think... That sort of covers my intellectual journey, but I think your question was also asking what motivated me to pursue this research, right? Um, I think one of the things that I found to be really um, influential were was that scholarship that really takes off in the 90s and early 2000s on Latino, Latinx um, uh, barrios, Latinx-built environments. And so I'm thinking about the research done by Raúl Omerovilla, uh, the research by Luisa Ponte and they're talking about, they're discussing in their research um, how Latinx communities come together to challenge dominant spaces, to challenge dominant spatial orders in cities. Um, and I just found that really compelling. Right. And, and, and when I started my research, that is what I wanted to, to look at, right. That's what I wanted to be able to identify. Um, unfortunately it didn't work out that way. Right. And as I dug deeper into my own personal experience, into my um, experience with design and art, I realized that, um, we needed to uncover other actors that were also contributing to the Latinization of cities. Um, and so specifically professionals, maybe designers, architects, urban planners. Um, and also that we needed to uncover those individuals who um, don't have access to community organizations that aren't part of larger um, social activist projects. Right? Um, and so those, those were the clear gaps as I began my research. Um, and the preface uh, is meant to convey to the reader um, one important point, that even though uh, the book is focusing on people with the power to shape the built environment, People who have access to property. Um, it is the marginalized individual; those individuals who are marginalized from property ownership, who are marginalized by property owners, i.e., landlords. My family, right? My mother, as I as I document in the preface, right? These were the individuals that were influential in my analysis of those individuals with the power to manipulate the built environment, right? Um, I think it's the case for a lot of us who do ethnic studies <laughs> that we often write from this place of, um, of, of social injustice, right? We're, we're, we're upset about some, some social injustice that we have observed either in our lives or um, happening to others, right? And so that preface is there to convey to the reader what, what is making me Angry, right? And, and yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and yeah. Like you open it up with with thinking about Union City, and I'm so happy that you you start the book there, and and in many ways you end the book there. And um, I think that 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 doesn't get lost, right? Just because you're talking about the people who hold the power, the brokers, as we will talk about, um, it never gets lost in the book that you you always have the community who who are living in barrios, right? You're, you're, as someone who read the book, like the preface and throughout the book, I can tell that it doesn't get lost. And it's your, your focus um, and, and sustaining, pressure on the brokers is really important. Um, and it makes us, it makes now so much sense that you have an art degree, right? Cause so much <laughs> of this, I'm like, I'm like, whoa, like we don't get taught that in American studies. <laughs> like, um, so I, I really like this melding of, of your art background with your sort of urban studies and, and analysis of gentrification and La finidad in U S cities. Um, let's, let's turn now to the book. Um, in the introduction, right, you give us um, a good understanding of, of of what we need to learn to get through the book, right? Uh, main players, main identifications, definitions, right? To our readers, um, or, sorry, to our listeners, uh, what are some things in the introduction that you feel need to be, that you need to convey in order for us to understand um, really the, the, the crux of your argument?
2: Sure. So as you point out in the introduction, I'm introducing several concepts, right, specifically the broker concept and abstraction. Um, And I'm also providing a history of the term barrio and how it has been applied in Spain under Islamic rule and then across the Americas. And how um, the word barrio and its spatial formation may vary in the, in the Americas um, compared to the United States where it takes on a more specific working class connotation um, and racialized vis-a-vis whites, right? Um, And so I'm doing both of those things, but perhaps it might make sense to unpack some of those concepts, right? Um, Such as the broker concept and abstraction. So the broker concept is an umbrella term for various individuals that I am discussing, doing research on in the book. And so these individuals include urban planners, architects, store owners, um, government officials uh, in the case of chapter one settlement workers um, urban designers folks who again have some sort of power to manipulate the built environment so that it represents Latinx culture and people and people um, and so this this idea of the broker builds on um, an ethnic studies literature that has, oftentimes referred to the broker often to describe um, Latinx people or Black people who are navigating different spaces, right the space of their communities, but also these professional spaces, these spaces of whiteness. Um, and so I really wanted to convey to the reader that the idea of the broker, all of these individuals that are coming together in this book are coming from very different professional backgrounds Um, they're situated in different cities in different time periods but they all have something in common and that they are trying to navigate these ethno-racial communities specifically latinx communities culture and people with um the uh priorities in their professional fields and these priorities tend to um Uphold whiteness, as I argue in the book. Um, so that's, uh, on the one hand, broker. And then on the other hand, I'm also introducing um, abstraction. Right? Um, and abstraction, for me, has multiple meanings. Abstraction can be freeing. right? It can de-link the designer from what they might perceive to be the burden of representation. Right? Um, but abstraction is also the preferred language of capitalism. It conveys the universality that um, can that can be easily exchanged and circulated. Mm-hmm. Abstraction can also obfuscate reality. Those real social conditions in, let's say, a barrio, right? Um, And then abstraction can also be synonymous with curating and that as these brokers abstract from barrios, what I'm describing is the ways in which they are selecting specific features from the barrio that they believe can be consumed by a larger audience. Mm -hmm. And then finally, and this I really sort of uh, describe at more length in chapter five, abstraction can also be about loss. And even death, right? The symbolic death of community uh, caused by gentrification. Right? So I see abstraction operating at multiple levels. And when I talk about abstract barrios, what I am referring to is that process by which brokers are abstracting the barrio, right? Using all of the, the ways that I just described. Um, And in doing so, generating new urban paradigms, new urban formations that might exceed the barrio, that might very well go beyond the confined barrio space.
1: That's great. I I'm taking notes because um, it's now starting to make so much sense now that, that hearing you talking about it, especially the way you talk about abstraction and the different ways you're thinking about it and how it's shifting over time. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, maybe first the sort of really rich etymolo- uh, etymology of the term barrio, right? Where you begin to explore its history. Where 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 did you begin to explore its history? And what should readers draw from the varied usages across time and space? Um, so that's one part. And then secondly, I think a really important um, distinction to make um, is between barrio or barrioization and the Latinization of space cities, right? Because th- these sort of come, um, come up at different moments over the book. And as you say, like they're not mutually exclusive but they also are not the same thing, right? Can you talk a little bit about about how they are different?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the Latinization of cities for me is a much broader process, right? Um, So the Latinization of cities is something that multiple actors can uh, create, right? So all of the individuals that I am discussing in the book um, can be perceived as participating in this larger process of Latinizing cities. Um, and so that sort of goes against the ways in which I think a lot of the literature talks about Latinization of cities, right? It's, it's done by working class Latinos living in barrios. But what I'm actually arguing in the book is that it's, it can also be done by professionals. It can also be done by non-Latinx people. It can be done by folks who merely just want to market Latinidad for the sake of profit, right? Um, and so the Latinization of cities goes beyond the barrio um, in, in ways that can minimize the barrio, right? In and, and ways that can sort of um, abstract from the barrio. Um, and so uh, as for your other question, right, um, the genealogy of barrios, um, I start um, with Spain under Islamic rule, where I'm able to trace the term barrio to barilla, uh, which was an Arabic term used to describe populations um, who were living outside of the center of Um, Islamic rule, the the center of power. And these tended to be Christians and Jews. Um, And so the the term barrio then gets brought to the Americas with Spanish colonization. And there it's actually used to refer to um, neighborhoods that are racialized and include um, indigenous people. Um, And so, uh, in a way, both are using barrios in order to describe the urban community formations of people who are marginalized from the center of power. But over time in the Americas, barrio becomes a much more generic term. And of course, this isn't the same across all of the Americas, right? But I'm thinking in a place like Colombia, barrio can refer to um, a very wealthy neighborhood as well as a working class poor neighborhood. So barrio becomes um, a generic description of neighborhood, Um, which is quite different from the ways in which we use it in the United States. But as the barrio becomes a source of inspiration, as I'm documenting in the book, as it it becomes generative, as it produces these other urban formations, the barrio itself is losing some of those linkages with working-class life. Right. with with um, and so in that sense I see the abstraction of barrios beginning to approximate the more generic understanding of barrios.
1: Hmm. Wow okay that is So then so then what do we make... so then how do we get to what is the what is the conceptualization or definition of audio that we're using in the post-war era in which you're writing right? where Where are we? Um, Once your books start in chapter one, when you talk about design for the Puerto Rican problem, um, who are we talking about here? What's the sort of historical formation of these barrios in New York? And what is this quote unquote problem that needs to get solved?
2: Right. Yeah. So I start with the Lower East Side because, um, well, the book is organized in chronological order. And this was the earliest example that I could find that illustrated the dynamics that I'm unpacking in the book. Um, And in the 1950s, we see a major migration of Puerto Ricans coming into New York City. By some estimates, by 1953, one in every 20 New Yorkers is Puerto Rican. And this is completely transforming certain neighborhoods in New York City, including the Lower East Side, which is, um, you know, for some of the listeners who might know, at the very tip of Manhattan. Um and so in the Lower East Side there's a clash that occurs with uh those second generation Europeans, um uh European immigrants who are seeing this new Puerto Rican population come in and thinking that um Puerto Ricans are going to reslum their neighborhood. Right. Um, and it's important to consider that this is happening in the 1950s, so some of the urban renewal projects have already started. right? right. So there's there's a certain glimmer of hope among these longstanding uh, European immigrant descendant groups yeah. who are saying, look, finally, our neighborhoods that were so stigmatized are finally going to be cleared of that stigma. And so they believe that Puerto Ricans are actually going to re-slum their neighborhoods and re-stigmatize their neighborhoods. And they are using some of the language that government officials are using, such as the quote-unquote Puerto Rican problem. Um, And in order to characterize Puerto Ricans as lacking the skills necessary to participate in urban life, Um, and so as uh, Puerto Ricans begin to concentrate in certain spaces throughout the city, the Lower East Side in particular, there are several people who step in and in chapter one I am documenting the efforts of one person in particular and that's Helen Hall who is the director of the Henry Street Settlement Um, and Helen Hall's Purpose, her objective was to um, sort of mitigate some of the negative feelings that uh, European immigrants, that white um, dominant groups in the Lower East Side were feeling towards Puerto Ricans. And the way that she goes about doing that is by including Puerto Rican culture in the built environment. And I highlight three specific projects that she and her staff are part of. Uh, one is um, she brings in Puerto Rican culture into a model apartment um, you know, whenever I talk to my students about model apartments and public housing, they just can't believe it, right? Because <laughs> because so much of our understanding of public housing today is is you know it's 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 difficult to get into public housing. There are major waiting lists, but that wasn't necessarily the case in the early 1950s. In fact, um, NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority, had to come up with ways to. Um, attract residents to come into public housing, right? And so they create these model apartments to show people living in nearby tenements what they could do with their apartments to show newly arrived um, housing residents how to live in a quote-unquote modern way. Um, And so Helen Hall and her staff bring in items that they believe appeal to Puerto Ricans right? so um, they bring in bright colors into the model apartment as a way to speak to the Puerto Rican population that is entering public housing at that moment um, one other project that she's a part of is a mural which gets placed in LaGuardia, LaGuardia housing projects and in that mural she um, uh, brings in the mayor of San Juan and um, to talk about the significance of the mirror and the mayor of San Juan at that moment is Felisa Rincón de Gautier. Um, and Felisa Rincón de Gautier is talking about how, you know, impressed she is that Puerto Ricans are finally being included into the social fabric of New York City. And so there are all these efforts that are being um, uh, sort of uh, made in order to make Puerto Ricans feel included in order to uh, convey to local whites that Puerto Ricans are not a threat, they, that they can actually contribute to the urban life and culture of the neighborhood.
1: So so what you're telling us in chapter one then is that there had been such, um, such a... Uh, uh, a badly depicted image of Puerto Rican barrios in New York City, right? That there, that then, one sort of New York Housing Authority and settlement houses um, were tasked with with um, housing, right? These people, these Puerto Rican communities, um, they 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 were doing so by by looking at them deficitly, right? Like that they were. That they were the reason for their own living conditions, right? Can you talk a bit about the social scientists, the the the, the, the surveys, the studies done about and with Puerto Rican communities and their living situations, and how um, slum clearance and, and these sorts of local local New York policies lead to deplorable deplorable living situations in New York for Puerto Ricans?
2: Um, sure. So at the moment in which um, the majority of Puerto Ricans are coming post-war, there is, as I noted previously, um, efforts to um, put forward urban renewal projects in New York City. And these urban renewal projects are um, demolishing some of the built environment in which Puerto Ricans first arrive. right? So. Puerto Ricans are being displaced. I mean, so, you know, their families are being displaced multiple times as New York City is trying to modernize. Um, so there's that, right? That, that there's a lot of housing insecurity in New York City for Puerto Ricans. And um, African Americans are also experiencing the brunt of this kind of urban renewal period in the city.
1: Mm. So what what I was struck by when you write about these um, social scientists, and I don't remember if Hall um, traveled along with them, but they go to Puerto Rico to study living situations in Puerto Rico, hoping that it will help them with a solution in in New York. Why is that necessary for them? Why do they believe that that will that will bring a solution to the blight of Puerto Rican uh, living in New York City?
2: Right. Thanks for asking that question. It's actually a dynamic that I also trace in chapter um, three when I talk about Santa Ana in Southern California. There's this desire to um, retrieve the best aspects of Latinx culture by going back to Latin America, right? Um, and so this is what I see Helen Hall doing: is that she's trying to convey what she thinks are the best. Uh, the best, most authentic Puerto Rican culture by going to the island of Puerto Rico and learning from Puerto Ricans there, Um, which can be a a way of disparaging local Puerto Ricans living in the Lower East Side, right, who have, by nature of their migration, become racialized subjects in in New York City and, and denigrated, because of their migration and because of where they are living and because of the kinds of conditions that they are having to live under. Right? And so there is this need to travel outside of the barrio, of these nascently formed barrios, in order to find authentic, in this case, Puerto Rican culture that then can be brought into New York in order to model the very best that Puerto Ricans can offer
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, on page 57, um, you write, in training Puerto Rican locals in design skills, settlement work, and New York City housing authority, er, um, sorry, on page 57, you say, in training Puerto, Puerto Rican locals in design skills, settlement workers, and New York City housing authority inculcated a multicultural design that addressed Puerto Rican tastes without undermining the conventional expectations of for proper uses in public and private spaces or the values impressed upon white tenants, right? So that's exactly that, that sort of abstraction that you're talking about, right? Bringing in um, certain aspects of Puerto Rican um, living design, but just not enough that it won't upset other people, that it won't upset the sort of hot, um, hegemonic notions of like, upward mobility living right um and i'm interested because then this brings in ideas of 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 color which is mm. the main subject of chapter two and i think it's it was really fascinating to read because you do a really cool sort of archaea would you call right Arche- archaeological study of color um, by bringing together quote discourses and materials used to describe people of color end quote can you talk a bit about this methodology this archaeological study of color and why you felt it necessary to approach this chapter in this way um, and further like how like how do histories of migration urban planning and interior design in the 60s and 70s um, how did they make how did they make color a public affair right? Specifically, you, you say like, um, that color was made a public affair, right? Specifically in relation to Puerto Rican communities in New York. And and here I'm thinking about the really fabulous work you did with um, West Side Story and, and the study La Vida. Um, there's a few questions there, but please take it however, whichever way you'd like.
2: Sure, thanks. So chapter two starts by juxtaposing two texts that your listeners are probably quite familiar with, right? Uh, the West Side Story film and Oscar Lewis's La Vida, which documents Puerto Rican um, family in Puerto Rico, but also as they migrate to New York City and live specifically in the Bronx. Um, and so I start with these two texts because I, I see them as illustrating the brokering of a Latinization of cities. How do they do that, right? So The West Side Story is um, a film about two gangs. One is a Puerto Rican gang and the other is a white gang. And they are um, fighting for turf (laughs) on the so-called west side of New York. Now, the film itself is shot in what used to be San Juan Hill in the upper west side of Manhattan. And as the film is being shot there, um, San Juan Hill is actually being demolished in order to create the um, Lincoln Center development project. And so uh, the director of the film is tasked with having to recreate what used to be a barrio, um, uh, what used to be a working class um, community of color, Um, By bringing in um, signage in Spanish, right? By bringing in um, colorful clothing and colorful markers that they thought um, addressed urban Latinidad. And so I see them, uh, this film, West Side Story, as highlighting color as a way to. Um, address some of the cultural features of the Puerto Rican population that they are narrating in the film. And I see this happening similarly in Oscar Lewis, Oscar Lewis's La Vida. In Oscar Lewis's um, chapters on the Rios family in the Bronx, he is taking these asides where he describes their built environment. He describes the decorations that are on the inside of their apartment. And he does so with a specific attraction toward color. He he goes at length of the kinds of colorful decorations that the Rios family has. And here, in both instances, color is used to distract the reader from these larger disparaging narratives of Puerto Ricans in New York, right? Um, and also used to, in a sense, humanize Puerto Ricans, right? Um, for those who, who don't believe that they are, are human enough, right? Um, and so here, color is used to racially other Puerto Ricans, and I see this 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 equation of color with the racial other happen throughout time. And so, in the rest of the chapter, I take the reader through various examples of how color is used to racially other Latinx populations, Latin American populations. And I yeah, yeah.
1: sorry sorry go ahead no go ahead again. no I I was struck by the you know like. where you talk about red as aggressive, right? Especially in West Side Story and page 89, you say, um, you know, red uh, washes of color could render Puerto Ricans excessive to the modernity, the city's urban renewal campaigns touted, right? Like color was excessive for the urban city, for the, for the modern urban city. Right. Um, But I wanted to ask about, so you talk about this shift from the quote unquote problem to a culture of poverty of which Lewis's study is a main factor in that shift. Why was that shift important to document in this chapter? And what, what does that shift mean um, for Puerto Ricans in New York City at this time?
2: Right. So um, at the very beginning of the chapter, I talk about how um, the West Side story can be seen as representative of this moment of the, quote unquote, Puerto Rican problem, in the sense that um, the Puerto Rican characters in the film are given a way out of their poverty, right? Out of their living, condi- their uh, urban living conditions. Um, we see this specifically with uh, the protagonist, Maria. Um, who's in love with Tony who is white and Tony promises her that they can leave Right, they can go to a greener space Um, and and sort of the implication there is that they can leave for the suburbs which are now open to Tony right Um, not necessarily open to Maria's family but it is a place for Tony, um, who, you know, could marry Maria and Maria, who is a, a white Puerto Rican, could assimilate into this larger white culture of suburbanization. Um, and so I think there is a gesture towards escaping poverty, towards escaping the barrio, that I think was always underlying um discourse around the so-called Puerto Rican problem, right? In the sense that the Puerto Rican problem had a solution to it, right? That, and, you know, I talk about in chapter one that some of the solutions were like, let's train Puerto Ricans on how to be more urban <laughs> and how to live in cities, right? Um, and so this, this is different to the culture of poverty as described by Oscar Lewis, the culture of poverty has no out, right? The culture of poverty is a vicious cycle of poverty. Um, And so in Oscar Lewis's La Vida, he is at pains and not just in La Vida and other texts and other presentations to um, tell the reader how Puerto Ricans um, are trapped in the cycle of poverty. And um, so that's where it differs, I think, these two texts.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, what about um, so beyond sort of *La Vida* and *West Side Story*, the sort of history of of color and its association with the global South or the South is fascinating. Can you talk to us a bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, So there are, you know, in the second part of that chapter, I take the reader along various examples that show how um, cultural productions, art, design would uh, locate bright colors in Latin America. Um, And so I have examples of um, clothing design, ads from Bloomingdale's, from other major stores that uh, describe um, colorful fashion as stemming from Peru, stemming from Mexico in ways that begins to equate colorfulness with Latin American people and subsequently with with Latin American immigrants in the United States.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting because... At the beginning of the chapter, you were talking about how color is often a sign of loudness and Puerto rican in, especially red, right, in the city. But by the end of the chapter, you were in 2010, and you notice a reappearance of color on affordable buildings and cities. Why is this important? Why is this trajectory important?
2: Sure. So I end the chapter by um, examining how bright colors, aspects of bright colors, right, little bits of bright colors are being brought into the design of new housing developments in New York City, though I also offer an example in the Mission District in San Francisco. And I see this incorporation of bits of color, chromatic color, bright color, in the built environment as Yet another instance in which bright color is being used to um, uh, speak to uh, Latinx people, Latin American people. In these housing developments, they are almost used as a way to um, to pay homage to the Latinx populations that lived. Um, in these gentrifying areas, um, just as these developments are complicit in their displacement via gentrification. right? So um, I see bright color operating in these housing developments in more recent times in ways that are similar to how color is operating in Oscar Lewis's La Vida, in West Side Story, and that they're there to... Um, uh, sort of uh, as a proxy for Latinidad, just as Latinx people are being disparaged, disparaged, dehumanized, and in the case of gentrification, displaced from their from their communities.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read um, a passage on page 107 um, that really just like took me that sort of like summed up this entire chapter and was like whoa i get it um so on page 107 you write color has become an abstracted version of the barrio that used to be it is a spectacle of neoliberal urbanization whereby once marginalized people and their cultures are distilled and sanitized for their exchange value and ability to distract from the actual racial changes underway in cities the depoliticized colorful abstractions of barrios that appear on gentrification generating developments Devoid of the meanings acquired when long-standing communities colored those streets to prove them valuable may challenge the subdued colors deemed acceptable in dominant built environments. They may also serve as memorials to a tenuously housed population, but they are not to be mistaken for the social belonging of low-income residents of color in cities. And that is so powerful to be like, don't get fooled, mm-hmm. right? Just because these are bright colors doesn't mean that, they're, that that these buildings or these architects or these brokers, right, place them here to appease um, and, and serve people of color. Um, and I would, I would really um, hate to move on from this chapter without talking about the case of Sandra Cisneros' house, her purple house. <laughs> right. Can you talk about why that's so important?
2: Right. Well, I think um, Sandra Cisneros' Purple House in San Antonio is a perfect example of how large swaths of color are actually threatening, right? Yeah, as long as color can be absorbed into larger white narratives of what is deemed appropriate, either in fashion or architecture or in the built environment in general, it's okay. But the moment in which bright color takes over, right, in, in this magnitude, such as we see with Sandra Cisneros' house, it becomes threatening, right? Um, at the moment in which someone who has at the moment in which someone who has access to property, right, such as Sandra Cisneros, as a Latina who has access to property, takes over and and you know, uses her power to to uh, refashion her built environment, that is a threat to the established um, social order and spatial order. Um, And so I saw that as a great um, way to contrast the ways in which bright color is incorporated into these larger white narratives.
1: Yeah, that was a really interesting example that I was like, "Whoa!" I hadn't heard about that. So I had to Google her house, see what it looked like. Right. Um,
2: and we see that again in San Antonio with the library, right? yeah, um, which causes so much controversy. Um, because here we have someone painting a library in what um you know white residents are regarding as a Mexican red <laughs> and 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 they feel displaced by that visual um illustration of Latinidad um,
1: and and that reminds me and I want to bring this up in chapter three as we talk about the Fiesta Marketplace in Santa Ana California right in the late 20th century what is the fascination with and I'm not sure I'm not sure if this is stemming from architects brokers or what but like with with this idea of the Spanish colonial past and its and its aesthetic um sort of uh, pleasantries needing to be in the public eye right and again I think this is this is where you talk a little bit about like these brokers are going to Latin America to look at inspiration right they're not actually going to Barrios in the U.S., but they're going to Latin America uh, in, in in order to um, engulf themselves in the Spanish colonial past. What is that, and why is it so important, specifically uh, for the Fiesta Marketplace?
2: Sure. So um, in Chapter 3, um, I discuss uh, the emergence of Fiesta Marketplace in Santa Ana, California. And Fiesta Marketplace, as you note, um, uh, is inspired by Latin America, specifically Tijuana. Um, so government officials, along with local business owners, along with um, developers, take a trip from Santa Ana to Tijuana um, with the purpose of um, gaining ideas, right? uh, finding. Um, the kind of urban uh, inspiration that they need in order to redevelop downtown Santa Ana, which at that moment was mostly Mexican, working-class Mexican. There were a lot of um, working-class stores that catered to newly-arrived Mexican immigrants. Um, And so they traveled to Tijuana in search for some sort of authentic Mexicanidad, right? They travel to Tijuana in search of um, a Mexican built environment that they think could appeal to whites in a way that what is already there in downtown Santa Ana they don't think is currently appealing to whites. In fact, they think that what is there, the working class Santa Ana, working class Mexican Santa Ana, actually contributed to white flight, right? And so they're they're in this position where where they realize that um, they have to cater to the Mexican population that's there because that is the consumer population, right? Those are that is the customer, but they also want to appeal to the possibility of whites returning to downtown, mm-hmm. and so they do this um, by turning to Tijuana. And it's kind of ironic that they go to Tijuana since the city was mostly developed with U.S. tourists in mind. Right? So Tijuana isn't necessarily what one might say is most typical of Spanish colonial architecture. Um, so it, they go and search for this authentic Mexican urban environment, but what they find is a syncretic environment, right? which is actually quite similar to the syncretic environment that is already in—not uh, not visually similar, but in terms of the social process, similar to the visual to the environment that is already in downtown Santa Ana. Um, and so, uh, you know, Santa Ana for me, and specifically Fiesta Marketplace, is really interesting because it presents the largest um, example of a brokered Latinization in the book, right? So as we just spoke about, you know, Sandra Cisneros' house and how um, painting her house was so threatening, the question for me was, then why is it that Santa Ana's Fiesta Marketplace emerges? Um, You know, why is it that government officials give it the green light? And I think it has to do with the fact that what they create, Fiesta marketplace, is tied to a Spanish colonial architecture that also sustains whiteness. <laughs> and so that, and to answer your question, why Spanish colonial architecture, they, um, Spanish colonial architecture is a white architecture of Latin America.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, on page... Um, maybe a bit to this on page 137, um, towards the bottom, you write to best understand brokers desire to make Latinx visible on this slice of fourth street surrounded by majority white suburbs and abutting the government center of a white conservative County. One must temp- one must temper it with the knowledge that they were eager to change and sanitize the Latinx spaces that previously existed existed in its place. This is the contradiction that brokering embodies, right? This contradiction of wanting to both make visible but also sanitize. Um, can you talk more? And you just did, but can you maybe talk a little bit more about this, and perhaps in relation to fiesta? Um, because you, you, I was really struck by. So right before this quote, you talk about some of the um, some of the vendors, right? That were that were utilizing fiesta. That were like, oh, this is actually. Quite helpful um, for business, but then what does this do in in the larger cityscape of santa Ana?
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, so um, right, so the contradiction that I see with brokering is um, as you know quite evident in Chapter Three in that example of Yesa marketplace, in that some of the folks who are going down to Tijuana. Um, some of the business owners who were Mexican had grown up in Santa Ana at a moment when there was a lot of racial discrimination, when Mexicans um, were being asked or were being pushed to certain sections of the local theater, right? Because they couldn't sit next to whites, right? And so they are they, they lived that racial discrimination right, and racial segregation. And so in creating Fiesta Marketplace, they actually see an opportunity to represent Mexican culture in the very heart of downtown, right? And I don't want to minimize that because I think um, that it would be too cynical of me to say that, you know, all of brokering is is obfuscating the barrio, it's obfuscating Latinx um, life and culture and cities. When some brokers are actually they 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 really do think that that their their um, practices are diversifying the built environment, right? And and finally reversing years of racial discrimination in the built environment. And so we see that contradiction at play in Santa Ana and Fiesta Marketplace.
1: Wow. Um I wanna I want us to get quickly to the next two chapters, but we're already um almost at an hour. But I, I do want to talk about chapter four. Um, because I think it's so interesting when you sort of cover the history and architecture of three, right, Latinx identified architects: Henry C. Snettles, Henry R. Munoz. Uh, both of San Antonio, and then James Rojas of Los Angeles. And so um, I'm interested just quickly hearing you talk about, um, y- you know, because you map out these three contributions that each of them makes, right? The, a new Latino urbanism, mestizo urbanism, and Latino urbanism. And for myself, um, I'm really interested in hearing you talk about mestizo urbanism and specifically mestizo city. Um, I wanted to know more, and I, I want to hear you talk more about it. Um and Munoz as an architect, right, and his conception of mestizo urbanism and mestizo city.
2: Sure. Yeah, so um, in that chapter, I introduced several paradigms that are being put forth by these uh, urban designers, urban planners, architects. um, And, um, you know, tying it to our previous conversation, chapter three, these um, individuals, Henry Munoz, James Rojas, Henry Cisneros, they are putting forth these paradigms because they are familiar with um, the ways in which Latinx people, Latinx professionals are marginalized in the fields of urban planning and architecture. Um, These are fields that are majority white. I mean, till this day, Latinx people represent less than 10% of the total employed architects, and urban planners in the United States. So in in putting forth these new urban paradigms, they really see themselves as diversifying uh, disciplines that have been Eurocentric. Um, But, (laughs) as I note in the chapter, there are ways in which their paradigms obfuscate Um, the barrios that actually inspire their paradigms Um, and there are ways in which their paradigms are premised again on an access to property so latino new urbanism is um, a design model that is being used to sell houses to latinx home buyers right Um, and non-latinx home buyers uh, Latino urbanism, which is coined by James Rojas, is a paradigm that is used to describe how property owners or renters of homes in um, in in Los Angeles in East LA are using their front yard in ways that are strikingly different from how whites use their front yards in middle-class suburban spaces, right? And so James Rojas is arguing that Latino urbanism is actually a more social way of using urban space. Right? And then Henry Munoz, mestizo urbanism, he's coining this term um, because he wants to move away from what he perceives to be um, categories of identity um, that... Um, uh, might not be inclusive enough, right? So he doesn't want to use Latino and he doesn't want to use vernacular, right? He, he, he's thinking of mestizo as a quote-unquote blended aesthetic, right? Something that is not confined to these limited categories of identity or categories of architecture, um, uh, one of the examples of Mestizo urbanism that I discuss in the book is Mestizo City, which um, Henry Munoz, along with his architecture firm, um, put together in Miami. And there I, I use the context of Miami to um, make one of my critical observations of mestizo urbanism and of Latino urbanism and Latino new urbanism. And that is the ways that it tends to um, dismiss or uh, not take into account Black Latinx um, contributions to urban space and Black Latinx experiences in urban space. And in in my point of view, mestizo urbanism, though I I understand that Henry Munoz wants to use it to move away from these static categories, I think that it can also refer to mestizaje and that larger literature on mestizaje, which has been criticized for um, marginalizing indigenous people and... People of African descent in the Americas, and so it is in 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 making those connections that I am I am I am both recognizing the importance of all of these paradigms while also um, being critical of them.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's so important, um, especially with mestizo city, where you talk about its positionality in Miami. How is it not in relation to these Black communities that? are constantly under dispossession, right? Um, um, But I was, uh, aside from that, um, at the beginning of the chapter, I was just taken away by how each of these architects were so insistent about the Chicano movement as being their origin story to wanting to shape and be, um, you know, a part of the barrio, which I think is really fascinating. Um, um, Which I I think is like an underdeveloped uh, idea and notion and study in terms of, um, folks who participated in the Chicano movement, right? Like they not only cared about the barrio, but wanted to in some way form it or shape it. Even if, you know, a few of them never grew up in a barrio, right? They say that they didn't. Um, but nonetheless, I found that, I found that really interesting. Um, but moving on to chapter five, uh, for the sake of time, while the architects in chapter four attempt to incorporate, you know, barrio aesthetics into the built environment, and foster Latinx belonging, you write that Latinx folks, quote, are the object of inspiration, but um, the least powerful users of these developments, right? So the people who you talk about in chapter four, they're designing um, mostly outside of barrios, right? Um, But in chapter five, um you talk about brokers who are participating in the gentrification um by or brokers who are who are participating in the gentrification of barrios right or what you um refer to off-air as um gentrification right um and you take us back to your hometown of union city new jersey uh can you talk a bit about this chapter and why you found it so important to include in the book
2: Right. Well, I mean, Union City was going to be part of my dissertation and my book, no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, one of the reasons I entered the PhD program is to do more research on my hometown. Um, So I knew from the start that Union City had to be in the book. Um, And here in this particular chapter, I'm talking about how um, the brokers, specifically um, business owners and government officials, are reshaping how Latinidad manifests in the city by pulling it into the interiors of, of stores, into side streets, so off of the main commercial avenue, because it is their hope that that main commercial avenue, if if standardized with some of the awnings um, that I described in that chapter, it can appeal to gentrifiers. Um, and Union City is um, right next to Hoboken, New Jersey, which and next to Jersey City. Um, both of those cities have gentrified in, since the 1990s. But Union City has been really slow to gentrify, right? which um, you know, is, is the source of much confusion and um, uh, of, of, of frustration for government officials right? because they want to see their tax base grow with gentrification. And so they're trying to devise visual ways of appealing to gentrifiers in Union City. But at the same time, business owners understand that, that they can't just completely um, forget their customer, which continues to be a Latinx customer. And so in one of the interviews that I do for this chapter, um, one business owner told me, well, I brought the colors inside, the bright colors, because I know that my Latinx customers want that. Right? but on the outside my awning is going to be a quote unquote neutral color it's going to be beige and white because I feel that those colors are more appealing to a diverse population meaning a wider <laughs> population right so there are these ways in which um, what I'm talking about in chapter 2 are being, brought to life in my interviews with store owners, business owners in chapter five on Union City, New Jersey.
1: Yeah, that is fascinating. (laughs) Um, And I want to, I definitely want to give you some time to talk about the end of the chapter because you ended on such a like harrowing meditation on gentrification and death. Um, Can you talk more about, why you ended here, right? What was the importance and the call to action you were setting forth?
2: Right. So at the very end of the chapter, I talk about the links between gentrification and the loss of place or the death of place. Um, and how I see abstraction, the abstraction of the barrio as being, um, indicative of that loss of place. Um, and you know, I, I think that for those of us who have experienced gentrification, who um, perhaps uh, can't be as close to the barrios that we grew up in, there is a um, sense of loss of that place, right? And, and, and it can be really, uh, there's a lot of emotion in that, right? Um, and so... Here, I just I, I wanted to point to um, the very extreme of abstraction as a way to provoke the reader, right, um, into thinking about you know what is it that we have to do with these places? What how can we intervene in these processes in order to um, have barrios retain some of the very culture and life that we find to be so generative in the first
1: place. Mm. Wow. Um, And then in in the coda of the book, you take us to the U.S.-Mexico border, right? And you you include this really important discussion of the border wall, and you talk about, and you highlight, right, the structure of the, quote, prison wall, right, which was a... um, Designed by Estudio Pai, I'm guessing that's you, how you pronounce it, or 3.14, um, as a, as, as a um, n- resistance to, as a, as a mockery of the actual call for um, um, architecture of border wall. Can you quickly talk about that and why, you know, um, in the coda, you move us from U.S. cities to something like the border wall?
2: Sure. So I was just really fascinated by this project by um, Hassan Ali Lada um, because it, um, well, it uses it uses bright color and it uses specifically that pink color that actually is found throughout the book, right, and that is oftentimes linked to Latin America and more specifically Mexico. Um, And I I, I like how the studio is using bright color in a way to simulate um, barrio formations and to um, link up to Latinx and Latin American cultures while also simulating the injustices faced by barrio residents. So the prison wall includes an actual prison inside an immigration detention center and a shopping mall <laughs> right so all of these ways in which um barrio residents are excluded from normative um society in the united states and the ways in which they are um exploited by us society right and so it becomes this show of, of of you know I think a, a challenge to um, the Trump administration's call for a border wall design um, that links up to what Sandra Cisneros was doing in San Antonio right like look I'm go- you're threatened by my my existence in this place so I'm going to I'm going to paint my my house purple well I'm going to paint the border wall purple bright pink and see what do you do with that, right? So it's it's a show of being, it's a display of being present, right? Of 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 being present despite the injustices that Latinx people face. Um, But also the coda was a way for me to revisit the importance of the built environment. Um, because I, I wanted to make sure that the reader understood that the built environment is a tool for um, uh, is a tool for upholding whiteness, for upholding um, uh, unequal racial relations in the United States, and that the ways in which we are able to manipulate the built environment can challenge some of those racial relations and ultimately in the coda i am sort of flirting with the question of like how resistant can the built environment be (laughs) like is is the built environment just by its static nature by its very involvement in capitalist processes like how can it really create social change right Um, and, and, and I think it can, but it has to complicate those property relations. And um, it has to join various individuals in the process of complicating those property relations. The individuals that I describe as brokers in the book, but also activists and community um, everyday people right in that process.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. And, and I think it just does so much ending on that coda to tell, I mean, for myself as a reader um, to think more critically about Latinx geographies and space in the U.S. Um, and then really sums up really well what you talked about in your book in terms of color, this quote unquote problem, this quote unquote solution, right? Um, but Johanna, thank you so much for explaining to us and talking to us about how you came to write abstract barrios. We have taken up much of your time. And I am so thankful for that. Um, But we have one last question here uh, on new books, which is sort of a a tradition. Um, What are you working on now?
2: Sure. Thanks. So um, my next book project is going to dig a bit deeper into some of the history of barrios that I offer in the introduction to abstract barrios. And so I'm, hoping to put together a cross-Atlantic history of barrio formations, starting with Spain under Islamic influence and then the Spanish colonization of the Americas and barrio formations in the United States. And I'm going to focus on various different examples, um, for example, how Uh, The census in Puerto Rico uses the word barrio and how it defines barrios um, in contrast to how Puerto Ricans themselves are thinking about barrios on the ground. I'm also interested in this concept that is used in Colombia, the barrio de los acostados, which is um, the barrio of those who sleep, and it's meant to refer to cemeteries. Um, And there's an interesting connection there between um, the period of violence in Colombia and the emergence of this kind of language to talk about um, neighborhoods of the dead. Um, And I'm also interested in, in perhaps bringing in the Dominican Republic as well as a case study. But um, yes, so this is what is consuming most of my time these days, (laughs) trying to figure out how how to um, uh, frame this project and the kinds of case studies that could be included.
1: That sounds phenomenal. And I'm so excited to read that book whenever you are ready to share with the world. (laughs) That sounds like such a great and necessary book um, to add to the corpus of Latinx histories and geographies. Um, Well, Johanna, thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, and I really enjoyed it.
2: The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for engaging (laughs) with the book.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Bye.